Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Jason DeRussia has the day off. I'm Dave Schrader. Thank you for joining me on Drive Time with DeRussia on this Friday, December 8th. So I, I had an interesting morning. I wake up, as I often do, thankfully, every morning, and uh, I roll over, check my social media, and I had been saving this uh, delightful picture to post, and I posted a picture of John Lennon with the word imagine over the top, and I hit send. And then a few hours later, I checked back into my social media, and there were many people on there sharing favorite memories, favorite thoughts, favorite quotes of John Lennon. And then there was a lot of vitriol. There was a lot of anger directed toward this man. And, and it was interesting because you look at the concept of what a celebrity is, especially when it comes to rock musicians. Well, I guess any celebrity ever. But where do we separate the celebrity from what they create, the gift? Obviously, John Lennon, one of the most influential musicians in history. I don't know many bands from the 60s, 70s, or 80s that weren't somehow influenced by the Beatles. And then John Lennon's solo career as well. But does personal issues, personal aspects of his life come into play on how we should remember this man? Now, obviously, today marks the anniversary of the tragic passing of John Lennon. So whether you're a fan or not of him personally or of his music, it's a tragic, tragic passing as he was assassinated outside of his own apartment building in Dakota, New York City. There's a brand new documentary out on Apple TV available now, John Lennon, Murder Without a Trial. Well worth uh, watching about three 40-minute long episodes as they dive into the backstory. And uh, the first episode comes out swinging, taking you right to the day the music died. And then the next two kind of giving you more insights into the man that took his life and what the aftermath was like on the Beatles, on the uh, family of John Lennon, and on the fan base. And it was astounding to watch this documentary. I wanted to not let this day pass without talking about John Lennon and about that impact. And I reached out. I wanted to talk to somebody that is a John Lennon expert, somebody who's actually spent years of their lives diving deep into research, separating fact from fiction so we could get these answers. And that person is with us now. Jude Kessler is our guest this half an hour. Jude, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, and thank you for remembering John. He famously said that you're not dead until the last person who remembers you says your name for the very last time. And there are a lot of people saying John Winston Lennon today. And if you're interested in participating in our talk and conversation today, you have something to add, you can reach us through the Cities One Plumbing Talk and text line 651-461-9226. What was your favorite John Lennon song? What were your favorite memories or thoughts? And how do you think this, uh, this man should be remembered? Go ahead and you can reach out to us there. Now talking to me on the John Schuster Coldwell Banker Hotline, Jude Kessler. Jude, you've written a substantial amount of books based on the life, career, and impact of of John Lennon. And you separate a lot of these fact and fiction. 
Are you surprised that there is this much anger and vitriol towards the man 40-some years after his passing? Uh, no, we have entered a season. You know, there are seasons of life. And when John passed in 1980, for the next 10 years, he was treated like a saint. Right. I mean, he people almost depicted him in the white suit with a halo. You, you really got the feeling that he had done nothing wrong and nothing could be further from the truth. Now we're in a season where he's being vilified. And just to put into perspective, John told people, I've got a chip on my shoulder that's bigger than my feet. I can't talk to people that I meet. He, he said in song after song after song, if it were up to him, he'd get himself locked away. But he cries instead. John had a lot of baggage. Um, as you know, I'm sure, but some of our listeners probably don't realize, John was, for very, very complicated reasons, I'm not putting blame on anyone, he was uh, given to his aunt and uncle to raise when he was four and a half years old. His mother had other things going on in her life. His father um, tried to take him to New Zealand to raise him, but on the evening before they were to set sail, his mother showed up, they had a discussion, and John went back to Liverpool with Julia Lennon. Um, I, I can't go into, it would take us forever to talk about why he ended up in that position, but all he knew, all he knew was that his mother had relinquished him to his aunt and uncle. And he found out a few years later from his cousin that she lived only a mile and a half away and she had two other children, two little girls. So mm. this little boy thinks, oh, it's not children she doesn't want. It's me. And he spent the rest of his life, he tells you in the White Album, half of what I say is meaningless but I say it just to reach you, Julia. He spends his life wailing at the microphones of the world, trying to get his mother, who's gone by this point, to love him, to think he's valuable, to think he's worthy, to think he's smart. And he struck, John struggled with that hole in his heart that he wasn't good enough. Um, one episode on the 1965 North American tour, he's being interviewed by Larry Kane right before they're getting ready to go on stage in Portland, Oregon, and um, a girl comes to the door of the dressing room and shouts, hey, John Lennon, and he turns and looks, expecting some word of love, and she goes, you're a tool, and walks away, and you would think a, a big star would just laugh that off. It hurt him. It hurt him very deeply because here's a man that has no self-confidence. So how does he make up for the fact? I mean, all at Shea Stadium, there are banners everywhere that said, Paul, we love you, Ringo. There's one banner that says, I love John, and he finds it. Um, it is, he had such a hole in his heart. And often the way that he showed that was he would lash out at people. He would keep you... Um, at a distance because he was afraid you were going to hurt him. Now, if he found out that you were genuine and you weren't going to hurt him, he would become your best friend. In 1964, of the journalists who toured with the Beatles, Art Schreiber, Larry Kane, Ivor Davis all said he was my favorite Beatle. He would sit and talk with me for hours. He was so sincere and on the level and not fake, and he was who he was, but you had to get past the shell. So uh, well, and I get that. I understand. I mean, we all come from backgrounds yeah. and if you grew up a boy in Liverpool, it was a tough instance. You know, I mean, when you see 
the first interviews with Paul McCartney and George Harrison post the assassination, both of them seem almost like they're just talking about the daily news. They're like, yeah, well, he's dead. That sucks, right? That's a bummer. Uh, and they just kind of move on. Later on, they do explain that you grew up in Liverpool. You didn't show your emotions. You didn't You didn't show that aspect of who you were. As a matter of fact, McCartney recently said that, you know, in the last days of George Harrison's lives, he stood, you know, sat there by his side holding his hand. And he thought, all these years I've known this man, I've never held his hand. This is not something Liverpool, Liverpool boys do. So I understand that there's an aspect of how they were brought up and how they were raised. And the lashing out is part of this substructure. But coming from being a young boy who felt abandoned by his mother and his father, listen, I, I had abandonment issues growing up myself with my biological father um, not wanting anything to do with me at that point in my life and uh, a lot of misinformation. And I grew up to make sure that I could be there for my children and be there as much as I possibly could to give them a life that they never questioned my love. Where he gets uh, Julian, it seems... For the first couple of years, he's okay, but it's really Cynthia's job to take care of that while he's out earning and, and doing his business. And then once Yoko and Sean come along, there's this break. Now, is this a myth? I mean, where do we stand on this? And why does a man who spent his whole life trying to feel loved and, and recapture that not see the irony of what he's doing to his own son? Yeah, and it's been done for generations. His grandfather did it to his father, Fred. Fred never really had time for John. I mean, he would have had John gone to New Zealand, but he didn't. And then he didn't reconnect for 20 years after that, or a little bit less than 20 years. And um, it is generational often. But to be fair, let's look at where John was when Julian was little, gone. He was gone uh, in 1964. They do the world tour. They do the North American tour. He's gone for two months. They come home. They have three days off. They go in studio and make Beagles for sale. Then they leave and go on the UK tour. And 65 is a repeat. He's never there. When he is there, he's getting up at 530 in the morning to go make a film like Hard Day's Night or Help. And he's gone until the studio closes at 530 where he goes to do TV shows. And when he gets home at 10 p.m., there's a man waiting for him in his house because he is there from the publisher to make sure that John gets Spaniard in the works and in his own right written. And he stays until midnight. John goes to bed and gets up five hours later. So it's not that he's trying not to be a father to Julian. He's not there. He doesn't have time. When he does have time, when he and Yoko get together, there were, in the early days, it was John and Yoko and Kyoko and Julian, and they did things together. Uh, Obviously, as the relationship goes along, um, he doesn't do as many things with Julian, especially after he moves to New York. But when he reconnects with May Pang, right? Let's, May, we have to take a quick break. We'll come back yeah. and pick up from that point because okay. this is an interesting element of his life. Jude Kessler, uh, a John Lennon expert and author, is with us. We'll return with more Drive Time with the Russia. I'm Dave Schrader right here on News Talk 830 WCCO. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices so join the revolution subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring listen on your odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast you'll be glad you did so this is christmas for weak and for strong we're back on this the death anniversary of john lennon assassinated on this date Boy, so many years ago, 1980, what a tragic death. I remember hearing about it first, uh, actually, on Monday Night Football. And I remember my dad and mom, just their jaws hit the floor. And uh, they told me the news, and the next day at school, that's all we talked about was the death of John Lennon. And we were kids. I was uh, maybe 7th, 8th grade, and it still had that deep an impact on me. And the guy had been away for five, six years, just released a brand-new album. So it wasn't like he was an important part of my life for a big part of my life. But you could definitely feel that there was some hole punched through the universe. Um, Our guest is Jude Kessler. She is an author, researcher, and a John Lennon expert. Um, Jude... Just, you know, again, looking at this this life that John Lennon led, and so many people have these preconceived notions that he was an abuser, he was a physical abuser of his wife Cynthia and even of Yoko, um, that he had, for, you know, forsaken his, his first son. Um, he certainly made up for it with Sean Lennon by really being a part of that boy's life and, and taking work off so that he could raise him and be a part of that life so that Sean would know his father as – dad as opposed to a Beatle or a musician who was never home. Uh, And you started to talk about what I think is referred to as the lost weekend when he ended up in a relationship with May Pang, who is, uh, and what was exactly her position working with the Lennon family? Um, She was an assistant to John and Yoko and did anything and everything that needed to be done from help with casting for the films to clerical work to I mean anything. She was she was their assistant and she was hand selected by Yoko to go with John when they separated and John moved to L.A. for a time. And then she lived with him for a long period of time when they moved back to New York. So it wasn't, you know, they everybody minimizes it, really. And John's the one who started the phrase, The Lost Weekend. But it was about 18 and a half months. And May had absolutely no issue with Julian Lennon. She wasn't jealous of the son of his first wife. In fact, she encouraged him, why don't you ask Julian to come over? And not only why don't you ask Julian, but why don't you invite Cynthia as well and make amends with her? And they did that and spent time together with the Disneyland. And after that, John's relationship with Julian was much stronger. He wasn't um, under the guise of someone who definitely did not want him to make that connection. So, um, you know, a lot of this criticism that's being leveled at John today um, comes from an anachronistic point of view. For example, people will say, oh, well, that song, uh, Run for Your Life, that says, I'd re- rather see you dead, little girl, than to be with another man, is that's an abusive song, and that's a misogynistic song. But the song was written in 1965 and based on a lyric by Elvis from the 1950s, from Baby Let's Play House. 
And if you look at songs like Hey Joe and, um, you know, there's so many songs of the 60s that were way worse, but John Lennon always gets singled out. Similarly, in press conferences, lots of times George would make a snarky comment, like a man would say, why do you Beatles need to be protected by the police? That's our tax money that we're spending. And Paul would say, well, we can't really protect ourselves against 50,000 fans. And then George would say, well, maybe you can because you're fatter than we are. Guess he got blamed for that. (laughs) The next day in the papers, John Lennon had said it, and he knew it. You can see his reaction when George says that he hangs his head because he knows he's going to get blamed for it. I understand. People need someone to be the bad boy, and they've chosen John. But I I can give you five examples just right off the top of my head of things he did, like giving money to the New York City police so they could get black jackets. When, he, when he's younger, giving his lunch money away to um, a girl, Phyllis McKenzie, who could only afford either the bus or lunch so she could eat, giving uh, food to the girls waiting in line in Matthew Street who were waiting to get into the Cavern Club, and on and on and on. This wasn't a villain. This was a man who was good on some days, bad on some days. He's a human being. Agreed. And I understand that aspect of it, but it's interesting. I mean, when you know these things, right? I mean, obviously, you know, with the new movie Priscilla, it's a new examination of the life uh, and love of Elvis Presley. Here you have mm-hmm. an adult man in the military courting a 14-year-old girl. But we love Elvis. I mean, yeah, okay, he was interested in a 14-year-old, but they didn't do anything. And we know a lot of these uh, stories have been massaged differently. Michael Jackson, one of the most talented musicians of the 20th century, and uh, so many allegations leveled against him. All the court proceedings proved that there was never anything that um, could be hung on him. And and people are still kind of fighting that battle of what is believed and perceived and what is real. Uh, but do we continue to accept the art from the people that we might have a harder time accepting the you know the, the personal side of? Yeah. And and John hasn't changed. I mean, it, we accepted it for all these years. He gave us the soundtrack of our lives. Help is 90 percent John Lennon. Hard Day's Night, 90 percent John Lennon. John wrote 14 of the songs on the White Album, enough to have his own LP from that. He is the leader, the force in December of 1960. Paul goes back to the Liverpool Institute. George gets a job as an electrician's mate. Pete leaves and goes and plays with another band. And John goes door to door and rounds them up and says, quit. You are going to be famous. We're going to the top or most of the top or most. If not for John Lennon, we don't have the Beatles. And we were fine with that. But now we're in the season where you have to criticize the person who had the stamina and the determination and the talent and the pain to sing from that gave us a great portion of the Beatles catalog. And that's not to diminish the beautiful work of Paul McCartney and the unbelievable work of George Harrison and the solidity and great drumming and backbone and innovation of Ringo Starr. But John made it all happen. Had he let them go their separate ways, we never would have had the band. So, you know, it's funny how the tide turns. Um, One day you're a saint, the next day you're a sinner. And I think John would have said, I'm both, and I'm proud to be both. You know, I am just a man. You can find out more information about Jude and her books at johnlennonseries.com. That's John 
LennonSeries.com. Jude, thank you so much for coming on and shedding a little light and helping us remember a little bit more about the, the rest of the man besides just the, the stories hung on there. We appreciate it. Dave, thank you for having me. I appreciate it so much. Let's keep saying his name. Amen. All right, we will be back. I'm Dave Schrader filling in right here for Jason DeRussia on Drive Time with DeRussia on News Talk 830 WCCO. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.